Joining me now on the phone is Democratic State Comptroller Susana Mendoza. Madam Comptroller, thank you so much for joining me. Sure. Um, Nice to hear your voice, Rick. I hope you're doing okay and you and your whole team over there are safe. I know you're downtown. Uh, yes, we're we're very safe, but I will tell you, downtown is just uh, it's it was very eerie walking uh, over to the studio from uh, the Thompson Center today, and uh, I bet. I bet. and seeing just frankly uh, other other than other than law enforcement, it was uh, people with uh, cutting up plywood and and nailing plywood. No. Um, what what is your what's your take on all of this? I mean, it's it's heart wrenching to see what's happening. I mean, I obviously um, would have hoped that the protests would have stayed peaceful because honestly, there there is a lot of um, a very legitimate angst and hurt and um, you know just disgust for what is happening in our country. And it's not just a one time thing. I think these protests weren't just about. Um, you know, protesting what happened to George Floyd. I mean, you're talking about just over the last three months, what has happened, what some might see as state-sanctioned violence against, you know, black and brown people. You've got George Floyd just the other day. You have Ahmed Arbery. You've got, um, you know, uh, uh, people who who should not be dead today and are dead. Breonna Taylor just in, in Kentucky in March, right? Like, at the hands of what people might feel it's because they did minor things or they even did nothing wrong and uh, are dead because of the color of their skin. And so it's not even just about that. I think, you know, initially these protests were all motivated by more than just, you know, one person, two, three, or countless others, but not just about issues with the police, but about like inequities in healthcare, the fact so many have died during this COVID-19 pandemic, um, the fact that children across America and right here in Chicago and in our state, uh, depending on what color of their skin is, is how successful they're going to be in the classroom, given that we don't have equity in education, no matter what bill we may have passed last year. I mean, we're still a long way away from closing the gap between children who we know are guaranteed to be successful as a result of the investments that we've made in their education versus those who happen to be black and brown and already start 10 steps behind. So there's a lot of things that need to change in our country. And what bothers me the most about uh, what started as peaceful protests and has, has now turned into, you know, rampant violence, unfortunately, um, is that that message that we need to hear and that debate that we need to have about racism, which is still very much prevalent um, in our country and in our city and in our state, um, that gets lost. And and what needs to happen, which is my, minorities and majorities coming together to actually fix this problem, um, is now going to, the focus is taken off of that and it's all about people that are looting or, or you know, um, breaking or vandalizing uh, buildings. And the focus doesn't need to be there. It needs to be on getting rid of this, you know, systemic racism that is very much alive in, in America today. Well, and and to me, I wonder about if there isn't a couple of things at play, too, because uh, obviously you talked about the various uh, levels of inequality uh, mm-hmm. throughout society. Uh, then, obviously, we learned about 
the healthcare system, and and that through uh, the the pandemic and how uh, people of color were disproportionately affected uh, by the COVID uh, virus, uh, and that they weren't able to access the same quality of care when that was involved. Mm -hmm. You've got, obviously, uh, the pandemic has drained a lot of our patients. uh, For sure, right? The the powder keg building, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And then you have, uh, if anything, uh, I think we've gotten more divisive as as a country and, and, and a nation and as a state, uh, in part because of uh, the that that tension that that's underneath everything over over the stay at home orders and and you know trying to fight as the phrase is the in, invisible enemy uh, without you know you can't I guess you can't see substance substantively what that you've accomplished anything until you get to these various phases that we have in the governor's uh, reopening plan. Uh, you know, those are those are victories. But it, it, you and, and, and even even with that, though, Rick, I mean, honestly, the um, the position that the governor is in, whether it's our governor or any governor in the in, you know other states across the country of having to make the very difficult decision of saying that they were going to uh, shut things down, essentially. Right. Which, of course, is going to create a tremendous hardship for people who can least afford it. Uh, but nonetheless, it's this this no-win situation where if they do their job correctly, uh, not that many people will die, right? Which by design then becomes a situation where because you were successful in not actually overwhelming the hospitals and not having, you know, uh, 50,000 people die in your state, that the people who didn't see those massive death tolls are going to say, see, we didn't need to do this. Uh, you know, it was a total overreaction. So from the get-go, you have to make a decision that the best outcome for you is that people say that you overreacted because that means that less people died. But it's hard to, you know, when you've lost your job or when you, you're having difficulty putting food on the table for your family, it's hard to understand that concept. But I don't envy the governor and the decision that he had to make based on legitimate science, based on the fact that he knew that if he did his job correctly, not a lot of people would die. And even with that, we've had over 5,000 people die. And this is not the flu. And it's not okay for people to pretend that it is. So, it, you know, again, it's it's a no-win situation for, for folks who had to make the decision to, to try to get people to understand the severity of what we were up against with COVID-19. And the worst part about this is that, you know, it has been so politicized to the point that, you know, wearing a mask is now seen as some kind of like I'm either a Democrat or a Republican when really wearing a mask should just be seen as we don't want people to get sick. And if I'm asymptomatic and, and I, I I may feel great, but I might be carrying this virus because I haven't been tested yet and I don't know yet. And I think the simplest act of kindness that we can do, regardless of what your party affiliation is, is just follow medical advice to wear a mask. But even that has been politicized. So a lot going on here, Rick. I mean, it, there are no easy answers to this, but certainly what we're seeing happen right now in Chicago and some of these surrounding suburbs now here in Illinois and across this country in all these major municipalities is just absolutely horrible and tragic. Uh, 
We're speaking with Susana Mendoza. She is the comptroller for the state of Illinois. I'm Rick Pearson. This is the Sunday Spin. Welcome back to your Sunday Spin. 312-981-7200 is our phone number. I'm Rick Pearson here in the WGN Skyline studio. And on the phone is Illinois State Comptroller Susanna Mendoza. Uh, Madam Comptroller, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the state budget that uh, the legislature uh, was able to put together in its uh, abbreviated uh, pandemic-driven session in Springfield. And uh, I guess maybe just to start out, uh, we continue to see uh, the uh, largely among Republican or Republican allies this issue that uh, lawmakers uh, will get a pay raise out of this budget. Yeah, no, that's not true. Uh, lawmakers will not be getting a pay raise out of this budget, and there's one person. Uh, no, no matter who's out there saying this, there's one person whose job it is to actually pay them, and that's me. So I can assure you the lawmakers will not be getting a raise in their salaries uh, for this next fiscal year, which covers the time period of July 1st, 2020 through June 30th, uh, 2021. And if anybody still doesn't take me at my word or believe me, they can actually, you know, keep me honest by going to my website and going onto our salary database, which is public record that's available at IllinoisController.gov. And uh, every month, you know, check to see whether or not your legislator or any legislator, for that matter, has seen an increase in their pay from what they're earning today. The answer will be no. And um, so that's just that's the deal. I, I really I think that this has become a, a political tool that, unfortunately, folks on the other side of the aisle are are using for their next political mailers. This is, of course, election season and people get silly uh, during election season. But the fact of the matter is, no, they will not be getting an increase in pay, and I'm the person who's going to make those checks go out, and they're going to look like they are today. What about the issue? Zero. Though? What about the issue of somebody filing suit? Uh, well, that's something, of course, Rick. That is without my. That's totally out of my control. Right. And I think this is a good opportunity to clear up why it is that the legislature voted on, uh, you know, the way they, why they did, did in this particular yes. session. Because, you know, the Republicans right now are saying, well, they didn't specifically vote against their pay raise, which is what the, the law currently says they're supposed to do in order to negate the pay raise. And that is true. They did not specifically vote down the pay raise. The reason, my understanding, and this is like on the record as legislative intent. I mean, Senator Menard has spoken to this and other other folks did on the floor as well. The reason they did they chose not to take the action of voting against their pay raise um, was because there is currently uh, a court case that has not yet been decided, but was brought against me as a controller a few years ago by two former state senators who should literally be like the president and the vice president of the shameless hull of shame. If there has ever been one. And these guys. Uh, the is, shameless um, hall of shame. <laughs> yes. I mean, like the worst of the worst. Yes, so yes. this would be because I think they deserve to be called out. And that is uh, former state Senator Michael Nolan, former state Senator uh, Jim Claiborne, James Claiborne. And I will say that it embarrasses me beyond belief to know that these two guys were Democrats um, because it's disgusting to me what they did. These guys 
voted a few years ago because the law says you have to vote down your pay raise. It's a cost of living adjustment, which we call a COLA. Um, every year, the legislature automatically gets a COLA. Uh, but if you don't, if you say, well, we don't deserve that raise, or right now is the t- not the time to take the raise, you have to actually vote on the House and the Senate floor to not take the COLA. You have to vote it down. So year after year, these guys did what most legislators do, which is vote down the pay raise. Um, And not only did they vote against their pay raise, so they voted to not accept their pay raise, um, they went so far as to send out press releases about how honorable they were and how they were men of the people, and this would be terrible to take a pay raise when everybody else is suffering, blah, 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 right? And they also co-sponsored the legislation to not take the pay raise. Yet as soon as they left office, both of these, like, shameless grifters turned around and sued me for because they should have gotten their money because when they voted for it, they said it was unconstitutional. But so really, it's the epitome of shame. Now, that case has not been decided yet. I have not paid them a penny. They've, you know, they keep coming at me with more additional court filings saying that I should have paid them, that they're owed this money, and I keep fighting this. And God forbid we lose the case in court, I will appeal it. So, you know, unless if a judge orders me to have to pay it, which I certainly hope we win in court and that doesn't you know, happen, you know, I'm not going to pay these guys and they're going to have to like keep suing and do whatever they need to do to get to, to try to get some friendly judge who goes their way. But I hope that that does not happen. But having said that, because the court in this preliminary part of the, um, of the findings uh, has preliminarily ruled uh, that, that the action of voting down a pay raise is actually unconstitutional. Um, they haven't told me I have to pay yet. And I'm still fighting this. The legislature, knowing that this court case is still being um, litigated, you know, fought, right. yeah, being litigated, they said, all right, well, we don't want to do the exact same thing that right now is under question in the courts. So what's another way of voting down our pay raise is, okay, if we can't vote down the COLA, so the cost of living adjustment, hence pay raise, we'll keep the COLA in the budget, we'll just make it zero dollars. So this concept that the legislators voted to give themselves an $1,800 pay raise is just not true. They voted to give themselves the COLA, but they funded the COLA at the grand sum of $0. And as you know, Rick, the my job is to, to pay whatever the appropriation is that the legislature approves. And in this case, they approved an appropriated level for raises of zero dollars, which is exactly what I'm going to pay them. And frankly, that's the right thing to do, because, I mean, you'd really have to be shameless right now to be pitching for a raise when, you know, a third of the country's unemployed and, and, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and they've literally worked four days over the last few months in session, right? So, uh, you know, it's the worst possible time to be advocating for a raise. So they did technically keep it in there, but I think they kept it in there to try to avoid a further legal challenge. Now, can someone once again turn around and sue me? Yeah, sure, I guess they could. I don't advocate that they do it. I can't control it. What I would ask, though, is that if somebody feels like they deserve that raise so much that they're going to sue me, that they actually have the guts to sue me right now when they're still in office so that I could hold them up as the poster child for shameless shameless grifters that they really are. Because, honestly, it is so infuriating to me as controller to have to deal with knuckleheads like this. I mean, it's it's what makes all of us look bad 
And in this case, we're talking about a, a few legislators who should have never been elected to public office to begin with, but who can nonetheless, you know, tie up the courts uh, with these ridiculous lawsuits. I hope it doesn't happen. But in the meantime, what I can control is not paying them the raise. And that's what I'm going to do. It's a $0 line item in the budget that was specifically acted upon by the General Assembly. On purpose, yes, with full intent to not get the raise. Um, can you tell me, I mean, given obviously what we know about the state of uh, our revenue situation uh, and the bleak picture that is, uh, obviously the legislature did approve uh, uh, the mechanism to borrow from the Federal Reserve. Um, I believe there's still interfund borrowing uh, that exists and some special capabilities for you. How 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 are you going to manage this budget in this uncertain environment that we're in well it's going to be the biggest challenge of my lifetime i honestly thought i've been on your show many times talking about what it was like to be the controller during the worst fiscal crisis in our history which we just were getting out of right um and that in of itself was like monumentally difficult task but at least during the budget impasse we still had strong revenues coming into the state now i didn't have legal authority without a budget to spend those revenues and pay the bills on time, which is why we had such a huge bill backlog. But, um, you know, I did take a almost $17 billion bill backlog during the budget impasse and whittle it down to $7 billion, which is still a lot, but certainly a lot better than almost $17 billion. We were finally getting out of the out of the woods here, right? You could see some light between the trees, and then COVID-19 hits. So that's going to blow another close to 7 maybe $7.2, $7.3 billion dollars into our lost revenues. I mean, that's not, it has nothing to do with prior fiscal irresponsibility, right? This has nothing to do with prior years of mismanagement. This is 100% the extra $7 billion on top of the $7 billion we have today. The extra $7 billion is a result of, of COVID and of also delaying the, um, the period for filing your taxes, right? So this current fiscal year that we're in, we normally have great revenues coming in in April. But those have been postponed. Uh, those taxes don't have to be filed until July. So that really hurt us in this fiscal year by over a billion dollars. And um, it's the next fiscal year we are going to be experiencing. Thankfully, we have a budget. But we what we will see is a gigantic hole blown in our budget of lost revenues that it will take us significant time to recover. So we cannot recover without the federal government coming in and helping us. And that's not a bailout. That's just legitimate help that every single one of the 50 states is going to need from the federal government to make them whole for the revenues that they lost as a direct result of COVID-19. We're not there yet. They haven't helped us yet, but that's the help that we're going to need. That's Illinois State Comptroller Susana Mendoza. Madam Comptroller, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And everyone, please, please stay safe.